0: Oh, and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel,
1: and I'm Mitch Bryan. And today it's Friday, and we are looking at Minute 90, which begins with Ripley looking under a blanket and ends with Bishop aligning
0: the dish. All right, and it's Minute 90, which is the end of the week, meaning this is the last episode that we're doing with Todd Norris this week. Thanks for being with us all week. I just said week eight times. <laughs>
2: Thanks. I'm sad that this is the last one.
0: It's always good to have you here. I always
1: have fun when you're on the show. Yeah. Thank you.
0: All right. So we're in the middle of uh, Ripley approaching this cot where we last <laughs> saw. She's been watching her
1: the whole time, right? Just like she yes. told her.
0: It, well, I, I pointed that out when, when so at the beginning of their conversation, when uh, the tucking in scene, when uh, Ripley's putting Newt to bed, she assures her, promises her, It's just in the other room and watching on this (laughs) archaic camera that's on the wall. And boy, she goes everywhere else. Like she has not been in that other room for any amount of time. She's
2: been flirting. Yeah. She's she's been,
0: oh man, hatching, finding out that their certain demise is imminent. What a terrible Um, mom. Yeah. She's not, you know, well, I mean, she did abandon her child, I guess, for (laughs) eight years or whatever, or 57, it turned out to be. (laughs) But this is, the, this is the
1: end of the sequence, really, the end of the sequence that started with her going in to see Newt. It ends with her coming back to Newt, and it's been almost exactly 10 minutes from the beginning of that to the end of that. And yeah. once, once we're out into the, into the wilderness with Bishop, we'll have started a new sequence in the movie, yeah. I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. Well, once, I mean, this is for next week, really, I guess, but once she gets under that bed with Newt, um. When she when she sleeps for a bit. When she wakes up, the movie is full balls out for the rest of the way. I don't think there's even a moment to breathe for the rest of the movie. If I'm remembering it and like thinking about it correctly, so this is kind of the, well, the big last breather. bit. Of, this is the last breather we're going to get for this movie. The rest of it is pretty. It's action packed. And this is way. Todd,
1: like you were saying. Here we are, 90 minutes in. Generally, this would be the part, point of a movie where we would be well into the we would have we'd be moving clearly into the conclusion of the film, into the third act, and it doesn't feel like that at all. It it feels like we're just getting started.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, to flash forward a few minutes, I remember uh, when when uh, Hudson says, "You know, how can they cut the power, man? They're animals." That I looked over at my friends in 1986 and was just like, you know, I could I almost couldn't take it because then I realized like this movie probably still has more to go, and I'm I'm feeling it, you know? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, uh, this, from a screenwriting standpoint, would you say that this is kind of... Like, this would be, if you were writing this movie in, like, a s- traditionally structural manner, this might be your midpoint, right? Like, this would be an interesting act break, 2A, 2B act break, for instance, wouldn't uh, it?
1: No, I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah? I, I think that um, it's hard to be... To, it's... it's Unconventional enough to be hard to yeah, pin that, I but I generally would I would generally see the middle of the movie being that point where Ripley takes charge and executes that rescue. So okay, wow. so, so we're at a, so a we're moment. really at a weird place where I mean our body clock as we're sitting in the movie theater, we know we're ninety minutes into a movie, and usually when you're ninety minutes into the movie, you're headed into the to the conclusion of the film. The last, then you've usually got twenty minutes left or. Maybe thirty minutes if it's a two-hour movie. Well, we've got forty-seven minutes left, right? Something like that. So it's that's almost a whole. That's almost an hour, you know. So it's it's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the war movie we were promised a war movie. The war hasn't really begun yet, you know. It's it's still we're in the trenches waiting, you know. Um, So the fact that the movie we were promised hasn't happened yet kind of makes it make sense in a way that it would you know we're get, we've taken this long to get to that point but it's going to need we're going to need a lot of screen time to pay off the promise right yeah. like we we can't have a say oh this is a war movie and then have the war be 15 minutes long so the fact that this extended action like these extended action sequences we're now going to enter into takes so long is earned i think and it's and it's appropriate to what the, we've been promised as far as this movie uh, what we're supposed to give out of this movie
1: the last two big pieces of action we had was the the rescue when Ripley rescues everybody, right? And then we've got a spaceship crash, right? And those are really the two, those are the two last big pieces of action that we've had. And none of those are overtly confrontational. None of those are going to war, which maybe is another reason the sentry gun stuff just doesn't really work because that's, it's, it's too little, too late or too little, not, Late en- early enough, or I don't know what it is, but somehow it doesn't make me feel like I'm. It's the war movie that I've been promised, and so it, it's just kind of this this thing that isn't that's neither fish nor fowl. And so at least we've had this slow burn, and we know that we're headed towards all these pieces. We just watched all of these pieces get put into place for the last ten minutes, and all sorts of things are. We're gonna see how the gun works. We're gonna see what Burke's up to. You know, we're gonna we're gonna see what's gonna happen with Bishop, who is who's crawling through the pipe. So, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, and we definitely, we have the ticking clock now. You know, we've got four hours before Adios Machachos, right? So um, that's another brilliant thing. Not anything brand new, of course, but man, so many other things have happened in the movie. Then like, now we've only got, you know, 17 days was bad enough and now we've got four hours. Yes. (laughs) Can we, can we mention just a little bit about Newt since, uh, you know, one of the, the, functions of this scene is to show that even though she's been comforted by ripley and is feeling that bond she still she reverts to her old ways i mean she's Mm gotten 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 under the bed and she's hiding and
0: well i think it's because newt might have uh gotten out of bed for a second and went to make sure ripley was still there and she wasn't so (laughs) she decided she didn't feel all that (laughs) she's like i've been abandoned again (laughs) um now uh yeah, I think that's exactly what we're getting. We're getting we have a feral child. She's been comforted to a certain extent. She's made a connection to a person. She's got a mother figure, but she's you, you don't lose the feral child completely, you know. So, yeah, she's going to hide under the bed. Of course, this sets us up for a much better space to have the action that we're about to get. But I also think it reminds us I mean, I think we're getting an interesting like subtle false scare here. Because two things happen. One, when she gets to the bed and we don't see Newt there, as an audience member, you gotta go, oh, well, where the hell's Newt? What's going on here? Uh oh. And Horner comes in with a music cue, a real ominous one at first. And then I think he comes in with a different kind of note there to, to take the ominous edge off of it. So we know, okay, not quite yet. But I think looking under the bed, while they don't play up a jump scare, which they could have very easily done, um, they could have had it be, and she looks under and then it, you think it's gonna be a facehucker, but it's Newt. I do still think they're playing with the idea that there could be a face hugger under the bed and there's could be a face hugger in the room. Like we talked about yesterday with how the geography and the way this scene is shot is supposed to echo the scene in alien where they find the face hugger. And yeah. so I think the idea is there and I think it's a good choice not to play it up too much. I don't We don't need any jump scares at this point in the movie. That's definitely too late for that stuff. I think for the most part, any false scares. So I think that idea is being played with a little bit, though.
1: You know, I didn't really get to mention this because it applies to minutes before I came on the show, but I just wanted to remind everybody, in terms of Newt as a character, I think Todd's point that she's still the feral child and she still has her survival instincts built into her. So that's sort of old Newt. And I think that the other thing that's endearing, again, in this section of not just 10 minutes, but now probably 15 minutes from some probably minute... 75 up, I'm not sure exactly where it happened, but you've got these two, three really endearing moments with Newt. Uh, one, where she's trying to see what everybody's doing when they're doing the plans. Two, when she gets picked up and sat on the table. Three, she gives a thumbs up at the end of the rescue mission when Ripley asks her "Is all right. And four, you you've get the salute after she put the cute little helmet on. So there's a lot of work being done to, to, to endear her to us. Um, which, of course, if you are the least bit cynical and you're watching the movie, you know all of that is happening just because she's going to get put into some sort of
0: horrible jeopardy. But I think that's good stuff. I mean, yeah. to me, I am yeah. yeah. i guess I'm not cynical about that. I, I kind of actually think it's its a sinister thing to do to make a kid super cute and then put him in danger. Right. It's actually kind of, kind of messed up. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess that's a Spielberg. Again, we'll talk about Spielberg for a second. I think it's something he would do maybe in a little bit gentler sort of way. I don't know, but um, in the ways that I think Cameron, I think Cameron's using some Spielberg stuff. We talked about yeah. that last week, but I think he is here. Uh, maybe in fine as he's finding his way as a young filmmaker, maybe he's taking tips from the master, especially when dealing with um, child actor. So maybe he's got the same ideas. He uses similar ideas as uh, I mean, cause how endearing is Barry in close encounters Right, I mean, we love Barry. He's yeah. the cutest little kid. He says th- he just says toys when yeah. he sees UFOs, and then. One of the most, what I consider one of the most horrifying sequence scenes in the history of film is when he's stolen from his mother by aliens. You yeah. Know? So I think that that's a Spielbergian trick uh, that, that Cameron might have been tuned into.
1: Well, we didn't see her brother get killed, even in the even in the extended scene, right? Nope. He he right. did, He's not the one killed. who had the. He's not the one who had the face. Somebody has a face. Dad hugger had. On him. Dad had the Dad
0: face. Mom screaming. Right. The boys screaming. Maybe they're all. screaming. And so,
1: do we know on some level that? This little girl is not going to die.
2: Well, has, uh, has James
1: Cameron convinced us that he's he plays fair enough that that's something that we can we can enjoy the ride and we can enjoy the thrills? But do we do we actually think there's any any chance at all that she would get killed?
2: No, I I think there's just that that there's a pact that Hollywood has with audiences that you know especially in a genre film like this you're not going to kill a kid unless it's a more cynical horror film I guess you know like a Freddy type movie but even then. Yeah, but what the, if they'd have killed? The what if we'd have seen?
1: What if we had seen them kill her brother? What if we had seen the brother die? Would that have been an all bets are off or not? Or would it would have just been like, well, she's definitely going to live because they killed the brother off.
0: Hmm. You know, let, let's talk about De Palma for a second, though. We have the Untouchables now. Different. The difference is that we don't have a. <laughs> the difference is it's Brian De Palma. Well, difference, but it also is a big Hollywood genre film. You know, so. The difference is the little girl that's getting beer for her dad at the beginning of you know, Tunchbulls is not Newt. Right. She's not a built-up character that we're supposed to love, yes. even though she is really cute. And she has a relationship with this bartender, so right. you, she is re- fleshed out as a real character yeah. for a minute. And then she gets blown up. Right. And then we get another scene... Where we have a baby like hurtling down or hurtling right. down in very, very slow motion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> flight of Slur- stairs. Slurtling down. And we believe ba- Brian De Palma has made us believe that, that baby could die, right? Right. Because he's shown it. So maybe there is that. Maybe that could have happened had the little brother. Of course, the little brother does die. I mean, but we don't, don't see just him don't in see this it. version. We just don't see him die. If you're watching the director's cut, you got little brother and big wheel kid. I always refer to the kid mm-hmm. who's riding the and yutani brand big mm-hmm. wheel. Um, we know all these characters are dead. So it is kind of no bets off, or all bets are off in the director's cut in a way, even though we don't see it. Now, what I think, though, he's what he's playing with here is, it's not Newt that, I, I don't think Newt's going to die. I never did. But I do think there was a possibility that Ripley could have. And I think there was a possibility that this redemption could come for Ripley, or whatever you want to call it. Her, her through arc, an act of sacrifice. Through an act of sacrifice, yeah. and she saved Newt. I think that's the danger that he's really playing with. Even if at moments you might wonder about Newt, You know, there's certainly some great shots and great scenes in this movie where she's really in danger and Mm -hmm. it's scary shit. Mm -hmm. But um, I think what he's really playing with is the idea that Ripley might be the one that ends up. Mm.
2: No, that does bring up an interesting—I don't know if you call it a philosophical question—but a question about how we watch movies, how we interpret movies, and I think in there are two things going on at the same time. You use the template of the movies that have come before that you have seen, and just the knowledge of how—and I'm talking specifically Hollywood works that there are certain things that are off limits. You know, there are certain things that just aren't done. And if they are done, it's done by like John Waters or somebody for, for sheer shock value. But, but in the moment, if the movie is working, you, you consciously forget about that kind of stuff. So I don't think there had ever been a conscious moment in my mind, when I'm like, oh, Newt's going to be fine. I was so, you know, I was so into the movie and immersed that those kind of questions, like to me, no, everybody was in danger, no matter what. I, I was in danger, in the, in my seat. Mm-hmm. So
1: Right. And the movie works really hard to build this reality and build in lots of surprises that aren't cheap scares, that make you feel like you're in that in this space, you know? Yeah.
2: But I also felt like, I, I didn't think that it was going to be this kind of movie where everybody would die at the end. You know, the, there is this kind of pact that movies have with an audience, and I think I, I, you know, I don't, maybe I'm changing my own memories, but I don't think I thought that there was a possibility that this movie could end on a total downer or a complete, you know what I mean? So I was, it's, that's what's, I think really good movies like this are great in the sense that you have a fairly good clue that it's going to end. Okay. But in the meantime, you're sweating bullets and you love it. Like you're really enjoying the experience that you're going through.
1: Isn't it funny? Because that it does, it has this, there's a, it's a, there's a popcorn movie quality to this. It's because it's an adventure film. Whereas you look at something like Walter Hill's Southern Comfort made around the same time, uh, where everybody, although there's a couple people survive, pretty much everybody dies and it's never any fun. (laughs) There's like nothing fun about that movie. So, uh, it's this weird balance between entertaining the audience and letting you know that you're having this great ride, but also knowing that there's maybe something really at stake
0: which is, uh, you know, more recently kind of interesting about Rogue One is that the writers of Rogue One had some room to work because they got to make a big popcorn genre of movie, exciting movie, but they had a built-in ending, which was one of the most exciting, fun movies of all time is actually the ending of your movie so they could do whatever the hell they wanted and they got to kill everybody because it didn't matter. It wasn't a big downer that all them died because at the end, they accomplished, mission accomplished, and it's going to carry us right into the, one of the funnest movies you've ever seen. So you're going to walk out thinking about Star Wars, not thinking about, oh, God, what a downer. Everybody died. Right. <laughs> so it was actually kind of a fun way that – I think something people didn't think about when they were assuming that everybody would be okay and there would be a sequel to Rogue One or whatever, um, everybody went in cynically thinking, well, they'll never do what they've got to do. This is, should be a suicide mission, but everybody, I heard that a million times from people before the movie came out. And afterwards, I heard a bunch of times – Wow, they actually killed everybody. So anyway, not yeah, to talk like too the, much about no, Star Wars. No, it's like Wars, the Dirty but,
1: Dozen. Like yeah. you know, it's a suicide mission, and every pretty much almost everybody dies. Yeah. Um, I just this does make me think of this film, It, that just came out, uh, that I just think is fascinating when you look at it in terms of uh, aliens. The stakes are always going up in aliens, and people do die, and it is really dangerous, and it's scary. And this movie, It it's so safe. The stakes never go up. Uh, you never believe anybody can die and nobody does, you know? So it's one of those pictures that, that, uh, that doesn't, it, it is, it is such a
0: failure, especially compared to something like aliens. Well, I would argue that one, one child does die and it, it's the inciting incident of the movie, The inciting incident but, of the movie for God's but sake. You're also talking about a movie that's a two, the first half of a two parter. That was kind of the fatal flaw of that movie. As far as what you're talking about, I, knowing that going in, that all these characters had to live to be in a well, second that's just movie. that's stupid. Who does that? Well, they did. That, well, it's dumb. I mean, well, it's to so me dumb. Well, to me, then, I, I turned off that part of my viewing mind. And I said, I knew going into this movie, I'm going to go see Goonies and Horrorland. I'm not going to see a scary horror movie where I think anybody's uh, going to die. I didn't know so about that, was, that,
1: but I just thought that was, I was watching
0: the movie and I was like, well, I you couldn't, saw the, couldn't give a shit. The know? original movie, right? I don't the, remember it. Yeah. I mean, they, they grow up to be, you know, Yeah, but middle-aged. I didn't,
1: but you know, I didn't know that about this movie because yeah. nobody, I, one, I shouldn't have to know that about the no, movie. I should just true. go in and take the movie on its own. And when the movie is unwilling to actually raise the stakes and you spend an hour just like, anyway, yeah, it was, it was just a disaster. I thought,
0: <laughs> well, that's our, uh, movie review. <laughs> well, I think, you know like
1: how far we've come. This yeah, is I what I'm you. suggesting is that you, you look at something like aliens and it's such a terrific picture because it's, it's not concerned with all this other stupid shit. Like that. There's going to be another one. Like uh, that's not on this movie's mind at all. You know, yeah. this movie is in it and it's in it to win it. And it's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, I would say that that is a fair criticism of modern movies is that there there has to be a built in setup for a potential franchise or it has to fit into a larger thing. And so very often the, you're like, well, what about the movie we're in right now? <laughs> you know, Please? I don't, I don't yeah. care about where it's been or where it's going. What about the movie right now? And there there, there does seem to be a lack of presentness in a lot of current movies because they're worried about how it's going to fit in with the larger or were the other corollary movies that go along with it? It's just
1: like who does that?
0: I'm just it. It's just it blows my mind. It works on, on a financial level, and unfortunately, that's what it's about for these this level. What we're talking about here is no, but it's not big, like they, it's not it's movies. not like
1: somebody went in to make Aliens not wanting to make any
0: money. No, but it was a different a different market back then. It, yeah. They didn't look at things the way they do now. They've made so much money with this formula now that that's what they're going to stick with. I mean, I think the best thing to do, and I've been vocal about this recently because I'm getting a little frustrated with people talking about how cinema's in trouble because they keep firing Star Wars directors or (laughs) cinema's in trouble because it didn't work. Well, those are not, I'm sorry, if you're you're, the state of cinema, if your gauge for the state of cinema is Star Wars movies, then you're not watching the right movies. Okay. So those movies are made to be products judged on their own if you don't like them you don't like them that's fine but there are other movies you could be watching if you want to find out what the state of cinema is with the freedom and independence for filmmakers is occurring it's not in star wars movies and you shouldn't expect it so to me it doesn't really hurt anything that uh, as far as cinema in general is concerned that these movies aren't working they're making money for somebody they're enjoyable to some people there are much smaller movies that are doing what you were looking for and doing it successfully so to me Let's start watching the smaller movies. Now that everybody's got the movie pass, use it and go see movies you usually go see. And I bet you'll be surprised that the state of cinema is actually better than you think it is.
1: I think you're totally right. I just feel like if somebody's going to give me an R-rated horror film, finally, and then I go see it and the only reason reason it's rated R is because kids say fuck 35 times and that's all it's got to give me for the R rating. I'm just like, wow, that's that's so bad (laughs) it's not scary yeah
0: the only to me you know if we're talking about it again the only scary thing that happens happens in the first five minutes of the movie and that is a flaw i didn't i wasn't a big fan i enjoyed it i liked it i liked it on the level that i thought it was a better movie than goonies but it was the same kind of movie (laughs) I mean, you know how much I love that. Movie, I hate so. Goonies, I hate so Goonies. it wasn't a big bar. <laughs> how are you uh, on Goonies? Bar? Good or up or down? Eh, eh. Yeah, it's, it's obnoxious. It's
1: terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, let can we talk about uh, can we talk about uh, Bishop and the this incredible storm that's happening and the visuals of that for a second?
2: Yeah, I mean, actually, I wanted to bring it up. It's good that we had this context about you know 80s versus today because. Um, What's interesting about the visual effects, or many of the visual effects of *Aliens*, is that there's a a high reliance on rear projection and on forced perspective and on miniatures. Whereas, and and so what's, and, and I'm speaking to the to the youngsters out there that that <laughs> you know that maybe we're not alive in the '80s. Uh, here, here's the thing, you know, and you've you've grown up in the era of CGI. What's interesting about this movie and I don't think you guys have talked about this yet, is that aliens, I won't call it an anomaly, but it was, an, it was a different approach to visual effects than what had come before in the early 80s. Because what happened in the early 80s was, of course, the rise of industrial light and magic, ILM, and the, and the Star Wars films were considered the pinnacle of, of visual effects. They revolutionized visual effects with motion control cameras and with the stuff they were doing with blue screen. And so what you pretty much saw in the early 80s and 85 and even 86 and all through the 80s were the visual effects. If there were spaceships or anything like that, they were shot on a blue screen. And what and tell me if, if, if you recall this, you guys, is that it, you could you would always see matte lines, right. you know, and so you would kind of you would um, judge the quality of the visual effects of the movie, not on if the fact that they were totally seamless. It was that that the matte lines looked pretty good. They right. were, you know, like really bad movies had these really hard black outlines around the ships, and they yeah. or they wouldn't line up, or the lighting didn't match. You yeah. know that the shadows were a lot darker on the on the superimposed object than the background. But the movies that were good were a little bit better. But you know, you're still it's blue screen. Right. So suddenly to have this movie that just sort of like there are very few blue screen shots in the movie. Some of the Sulaco maybe. But for the most part, it's miniatures uh, that they're shot at a high frame rate and then slowed down, or they're completely rear. There's a big giant screen behind the actors, and it's all being rear projected. And so when I'm sitting there in the movie with my friends, it it snapped you out of this. Uh, I mean, it was a real revelation because it was actually older school techniques being used. And since you hadn't seen them for a while, and they were done very very well, I mean, some of the shots of the dropship landing and some of that rear projection stuff. Is really incredible, yeah. and it just looked so different than what was coming out in the '80s. And that's that's what I remember: is that aliens looked different than all the other sci-fi movies because it was actually using old-school techniques at the time. So I just want to, for the kids today, I just want to let you know that like the blue screen look of ILM and the Star Wars movies was it was a def a, a different style, and that Cameron coming up through Roger Corman and all that other stuff was was a, a lower budget effect right. but it actually worked better because we hadn't seen those in a while yeah. so it's like there's some shots in the movie that were forced perspective models and stuff and it's i still have a tough time looking at them and going really that's
1: a- or the mirror the mirror that doubles the the, the amount of um cryopods yeah is brilliant old brilliant. school techniques like yeah.
2: that that really really work that of course today you just you know cgi and, and right we're done. so that's what was really cool was was using old techniques cheap low budget techniques and making it seem completely seamless. And so this shot that we're talking about, just the, that shot of the lightning on the, on the atmospheric processor unit, and then the camera, I think, pulls back to uh-huh. reveal Bishop. It's just a rear-projection screen of a pre-done uh, model and then some lightning animation that's been put on it. But it's a lot and more convincing than a, bl- a blue screen, you know, if they had superimposed him and shot him on a blue well, screen. Well, and then the, the,
1: physical, the physical wind... And the like the environment that, that Bishop is in that's being physically created in front of that screen is also really special, and this and the sound yeah. as well. It's a really um, it's a it's a it's a little it's not even a sequence, it's a scene that is both really beautiful to look at but also really harsh. And it, it feels it feels cold and uncomfortable and unpleasant to me, which I think is really great about that.
2: Yeah, it's also a scene that would be difficult to do had they shot at blue screen because of all the of all the the blowing hair you know Mm -hmm. like things like hair are very difficult to key out when you shoot for a blue screen or if you have wind or you know atmosphere in the foreground like dust and stuff well you can't really key out dust and that's why they chose to use rear projection so that they could have the moisture on the windows and the the atmosphere in the foreground and So not only is it more realistic, but if you think about Cameron's uh, discipline and his energy to get these movies made, what it required was that all those effect shots had to be done beforehand, you know, because in order to be able to rear project Mm -hmm. those on the screen, they had to be done. So there was no like, oh, we'll We'll fix it in post. Yeah, we'll fix it. Mm -hmm. There was none of that. So there's just a sense of um, organization and uh, just hard work and preparation that, went into this movie and I think it it comes out in the quality of the effects because it all has an organic quality because it was really there and they could really react to it instead of looking at the tennis ball on the green screen like some movies that we know about.
0: Nice. So there. That's a great way to end the week. Yeah. All right. Well, Todd, remind everyone once again where they can find you online.
2: Uh, You can see my films at toddnorris.net and you can also see the films of myself and Mitch Bryan at jetpackpicks.com.
0: And you can find us at alienminute.com, on Instagram at Alien Minute podcast or on Twitter at alienminutepod. Uh, I want to thank Alex and Pete again for b- loaning us the concept of the Movies by Minute uh, podcast. Uh, thanks a lot, guys, and check out any other Movies by Minute podcasts that you might want to listen to at moviesbyminutes.com. And I want to thank Mitch Bryan again for coming back for a couple of weeks. Uh, don't know exactly when he's going to be back. We haven't I haven't scheduled anything past this actually, so I don't know who's who's on next week. Flying but by the seat of your pants. Yeah. Don't need I don't need no buffers. We don't my family doesn't need buffers. But anyway. Um, we'll see you next week for minute number ninety one.